Uh, Yasmin uh, might have just had a, a devastating uh, revelation that she might actually be a boomer. <laughs> it's very sad. It's very sad. I don't believe I am. God damn it. Well, as you said, Chris, you know, it's all in one spirit. Eliza, we were trying to figure yes. out if I'm a boomer or not. And the decision that I have made is that I am not. <laughs> so. Because, I mean, regardless of where you're born, my, my philosophy is what are you in spirit, exactly, right? damn um, it. <laughs> And in spirit of 26. So. I mean, if you're on the cusp, then yeah, which who, who do you relate to more? Oh, fuck the, the Gen Xers every time. Listen, when Winona Ryder played Spock's mother, the world ended for me. I was like, oh my God, no. Wait, whose mother? Oh, Winona, Spock, Spock in the Star Trek movie. Oh. The first, the J.J. Yeah, Abrams the JJ. Star Trek movie. Oh, she, she played, played oh, I didn't even know that. Um. She played Leonard Nimroy's mom, and she was only like, at the time, she was probably only like 44 yeah, years old. not Leonard Nimoy, oh, wow. but whoever, yeah, the guy. Well, I guess technically, actually, yeah, Leonard Nimoy's mom, yes, <laughs> which is very depressing. <laughs> He had a cameo in he had it, a you cameo, know. Exactly, he did have a cameo. But you're right; it's that Latino yes, dude, the yeah, gay one, yeah, who played yeah, Spock. I, they're all Latino and gay. It was, it was, Wait, it was the, Quinto. Yeah, it was the sexy Spock Star yes. Trek one. Zachary Quinto's Latino. Quinto, you, yeah. yeah. Right. Listen to his name. <laughs> oh, I thought he was like Italian or something. I don't know. <laughs> I was just reading all this stuff about one of the hottest women on the planet, Gina Torres, and she was like, you know, how people think about Italian and Latino. <laughs> is not mm -hmm. what she looks like um but she's herself you know she's in her own universe i'm like you don't need to be identified as anything but you escape from plan a Welcome, everyone, uh, another episode of Escape from Plan A for you. I'm your host, Chris, with Liza. Hey, what's up, Liza? Hey. And one of our favorite guests, uh, she was on recently, I think, episode 261 with uh, our Adam, uh, talking about adoption and all all that and celebrity nonsense surrounding that. Yasmin Nair. Yasmin, thank you for coming Always back on again. Always lovely to be back. Thank you so much. And we've got a great episode for you. Uh, I mean, it is a Pride Month. And Yasmin, um, you recently published an article, uh, you know, decrying the whole fake controversy over kink at Pride Parade. So we'll talk about that. And also, Yasmin, you tweeted something very interesting about how a lot of book reviews these days are completely non-substantive. The reviewer just ends up talking about him or herself, which uh, I, th I think is totally true. And, and so we'll talk more about just the whole spinelessness of the cultural critic industry. Before we get into that, uh, Yasmin, just tell us how you've been. Um, and in case listeners don't know who you are, just give a quick introduction. And yeah, I, I just want to know how you've been in the last uh, few oh, weeks. Thank you. No, it's been good. I've been writing a lot. Uh, and, um, and you know, I have a lovely new view. I just moved. I moved in September. But it took, I think, six months to move because they lost all my feet. I'm still in Chicago, still in Hyde Park, which is a lovely place. Uh, it's it's it, there's nothing going on, which is, so it's a great place to write. <laughs> but there's nothing. Yeah, but perfect, I, yeah. but I want to get back to having a life. I'll have to move. But right now it's beautiful. 
Uh, but yeah, no, it's been good, um, you know, and I'm looking forward to just, frankly, I I did not like, obviously, what the pandemic did to the world, but I did like sort of being enclosed onto myself in a way. And I'm, yeah. Yasmin, you're in perfect company. All three right? of us, from a, from a purely selfish point yeah. of view, uh, had a great pandemic. This was like the best year of my yes. whole life. <laughs> yes, yes. Can we have more of this social isolation stuff without the death? <laughs> Like I, as an introvert, I have never been able to introvert this hard before. <laughs> and I'm just like, this was so therapeutic. Yeah. And like, I got so much done. Yes. yes. My house is so clean. <laughs> and like all the other stuff that I've done, like all the writing and like, I don't know, just all these, all the projects I've always wanted mm -hmm. to do. I finally either started or I just went ahead yeah, and did them. Yeah, no, same here, same here. So, but anyway, long story short. Yeah. And I just for people who know who I am, I'm a writer in Chicago. That's it. And I love being on planning. Speaking of getting projects done, I mean, recently, I, I, for the longest time, I've had this uh, jazz piano textbook that I, I must have bought when I was in college. Mm. So like, uh, <laughs> you know, over 10 years ago. And I would never get past like the first 20 or so pages because I would get to it and I, I would kind of forget about it. Then I forget everything. I have to start from the beginning. Uh, last year, starting, uh, you know, during the pandemic, I, I worked hard, uh, you know, going a little by little at it, taking notes. And just, just a few days ago, I finally uh, finished the whole book. Uh, now I have to go through it and do it again, you know, just to get all the concepts uh, burned into my brain. But hey, you know, that's like, uh, Liza, as you were saying, you know, getting stuff done. Uh, that I never would have yeah, done that. Yeah, it's like all those super time-consuming projects that you never had any energy or time to work on them before. It's like they... You know, I'm like well into most of mm -hmm. them if I haven't already finished. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, like like the, the millions of deaths and all the economic catastrophe. That is yeah. kind of bad. But, you know. <laughs> all of that sucks. But. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, so anyway, uh, Yasmin, how has Pride Month been for you? Um, yeah. yeah I, I've been pretty disconnected with it in terms of. I've been, I like this summer. I I've been, I pledged to what I call like a low IQ summer. By by which I mean I'm I'm just gonna try not to care too much about the news and, and like politics because you know it's it's all stupid anyway. At least for a season, and just you know concentrate on you know friends and and lovers and and writing and reading and all that. So in fact, that's probably more of a high IQ summer. Yeah. I think that is <laughs> the Ladies, smart thing to he's, do. He said lovers plural. <laughs> 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 the summer of love, you know. <laughs> but um, so but but so Pride Month, I haven't really been keeping up with. I'm sure there have been like controversies and, and stuff like that. So uh, Yasmin, what what's been going on? So you know the the one big controversy that comes up every year, right? With with increasing intensity every summer because queers at this point in time are like, so why do we matter? Uh, the one big controversy that always comes up every year is. Should we allow kink at Pride? People are saying we shouldn't allow kink at Pride. So I got tired of that this year. Well, the other one that is worth thinking about, you know, and something that did happen that was sort of positive is that the New York uh, Pride organizers told New York City cops that they could not march in the Pride in their uniforms. I think that's that was the message sent out. So that created a bit of a controversy. But, you know, in the rest of the country, everyone's going to think it's wonderful to have cops uh, you know, marching in pride, but it does at least send, I think, a quote-unquote message, I suppose, uh, to in, if New York does that, right? But other than that, there's always been every year, there's always been all this talk about kink at pride. 
So finally this year I said, you know what, I'm just going to launch my own little mini investigation into this. (laughs) I'm like, what the fuck? Who is saying? So every time one of my friends or anyone said, oh, you know, blah, 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 we should have kink at Pride because we must be proud of it. Blah, 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 blah. Kink is, you know, uh, to be celebrated. And by the way, I firmly believe in kink and BDSM and all the rest. But I said, who's telling you this? And they were like, well, no one really, but I'm kind of like just saying. I said, well, if no one is telling you you can't do it, then why do you keep wanting to talk about it, right? So I looked into it and, you know, I think there was only one op-ed and that was even written in the UK, not even in the US. There was an op-ed in the fucking (laughs) Independent in the UK. And it was the same old grousing, right? You know, blah, 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 children. who Why won't we think of the children? Blah, blah, blah. we, We should be normal. Blah, 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 blah. And I said, well, this is a complete non-issue. Um, so I wrote a piece about kink at Pride. And I basically said, you know, this whole thing is a non-issue. And there are much bigger issues for us to be concerned about. And the reason I think that we are so, we're always, I think the, the reason why the hype about kink at Pride comes up every year with more and more intensity every year is I, because I do think the mainstream not radical queers, but mainstream LGBTQ people really don't know how to justify what the fuck they are and what they're doing. Now that they've gotten everything, right? They've gotten everything horrible, (laughs) right? They've gotten fucking gay marriage. They've got hate crime legislation, which puts people in jail for longer periods of time. They've got inclusion in the military. They've got... They've got the CIA. Yeah, Yeah. Oh, yes, I know the CIA ads, you know, all of that. They don't know how to talk about themselves, I think. And I think for a lot of queers, and so it's so interesting to me that a lot of my 20-something queers, for instance, are, you know, they're getting married, yes, but also they're really gloming onto this idea that kink, right, kink and all of that, and also polyamory, is all of that is somehow radical politically. And, you know, that's just sex. (laughs) I'm like, your fucking is not sex. Go fuck however you want with however many people you want, but never make the mistake of assuming that that is somehow equal to a radical politics. And in the meantime, (laughs) right, what we have among, you know, not just for queers, but for straight people, we have a goddamn pandemic, which has killed millions across the world. We have sex offender registries, which still exist to... And they're horrendous, uh, you know, inventions. Um, we have trans people and LGBTQ people being forced to go into the military if they happen to be very poor. This is how Chelsea Manning ended up in the military. She went into the military because she had no other choice, right? So, you know, so we have all these economic issues. Housing is an issue. Uh, you know, healthcare, tra- LGBTQ healthcare is still a huge issue across the country. Uh, you know, and so on. There's so many other issues for us to be concerned about, but everyone's gloming on to kink and pride. For our listeners, what, what exactly do you mean by kink? Because like kink, mm. kink has become yeah. so just yeah. like yuppified, yeah. where you know you could have like fuzzy handcuffs. That's yeah. kink, and then you got like you know blood play or whatever that is. So, so what exactly? <laughs> what kind of kink are we talking about? I think here? that's an issue as well. I think that when people use that term, they mean it in a very broad sense. And some of them conflate kink and BDSM, which is not exactly the same, perhaps. But I think broadly, the way people are thinking about kink and pride is everything from fetish, you know, fetish wear to BDSM, just dis- anything that displays an interest in any kind of fetish, quote unquote, fetishistic lifestyle. I think that's how 
for the purpose of kinked pride, I think that's how people are defining it. But it's actual kinksters and actual BDSM people have objections to how broadly those things are conflated and defined or not defined. Uh, so what's your personal stance? I mean, if if this were a real controversy, what would be your attitude? Like, do, like if, should people be out in like full oh, fetish totally. gear? Oh, totally. Yeah, I, I'm totally park? in support of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, no. If there were, you know, and then especially in Chicago, places like Chicago and New York, there's not likely to be. But if there was someone saying, you can't have kink at Pride because X reason, I would be the first one to fight on behalf of, you know, kinksters and BDSM. If anyone who wanted to should demonstrate in public. Absolutely. Yeah. No, there's no place for that. We've come too far mm-hmm. <laughs> to go back. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I have I have no dog in this fight, but my feeling is it like the, the kink it it would restore some kind of much needed uh, subversiveness to these parades, which have now just basically become like Macy's Thanksgiving Day parades. It seems um, every company is in on it. Uh, people are bringing their kids and. It just seems like an excuse for you know merchants to hawk their mm-hmm. wares. You know, let's let's have some some dangerous fun again. Uh, anyway, yeah. that's my view as a total outsider. But I guess for me, the question is like, it, it's to me, it's to me, it's not even dangerous fun. You know, it's fun, but it's not subversive. I guess for me, subversive means something that's politically subversive. You know, so for me, mm. something politically subversive would be disrupting pride, for instance. You know, I, I'd like to see more of that. I used to be part of a group uh, that, that did that regularly every year. We had a rule about never paying to get into pride. That's the other thing. If you want to march in pride, you have to pay quite a lot of money. Only groups and organizations can... Wait, yeah, really? Yeah. Well, oh, oh, I guess if you, basically if you want to be... Yeah, and, like, like if you have yeah, a float or something Not even like a float. That. Even if you just wanted to march, yeah. If you wanted to march hmm. as a group, for instance, you had to pay. So our rule was always we never paid. And we always got another group to sneak us in, uh, which was kind of fun. And then, you know, we would have our own demo against corporate pride and all of that. But at this point, corporate pride is pride, you know? Like, I, I hear that there are other prides, like apparently the Toronto pride is different. Uh, I do think there's a reason for pride to exist. I do think there's, you know, it's a celebration. It's It's... It's something. I, I, I don't think it doesn't matter. But yeah, the, what, what, is, what would be a subversive pride, I guess, you know, would also be a question for me. And I'm with you on that. Mm. But I guess, yeah. But for me, like, I guess maybe because I'm in my life, I don't think of kink or BDSM as particularly subversive. I just think of them as ways of being, you know. Did you all see that uh, Shake Shack? <laughs> yes, I don't know if this I was. <laughs> yes, I, I put it in the, in the outline and. It was in case people haven't seen Eliza. Did you see that? Uh, no. Okay. So just to paint the picture, there are these four or so like elderly gay men, and they're talking about how difficult it was for them to come out to their and th- these are like, uh, you know, people probably in their seventies, and they have like all these old pictures of them, uh, like you know, from the forties or fifties or whatever, talking about how hard it was to, uh, to come out to their parents and and to society. And in the end, you realize uh, they're, they're all, it's a Shake Shack. <laughs> Nothing is Shake Shack. I love Shake Shack, but it's just like, what the yeah. hell is this? Like, what does this have to do with anything about uh, gay pride? I don't know. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that's why I'm like, hey, if, if kink will shake things up and, and get people a, a little bit uncomfortable right, again right. in a good way, right. seems like a positive development. 
uh, speaking of like LGBTQ, I guess this this concerns more of the the T part in that. Uh, have you been following the controversy with? And I'm, I want to get her name right. Uh, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. Yes. <laughs> I, okay. I really, really liked her essay. Yes. Yes. Uh, so this just happened last mm-hmm. night, I think. So this was a very late edition. We I didn't know we were going to pot about it, but I, I know this all stems from uh, some supposedly anti-trans mm-hmm. thing she said like a few years ago. But I I saw what she wrote and I thought it was very good. And have you read any of her novels, by the way, uh, Yasmin or Eliza? She wrote Americana. Mm-hmm. Yes, and Half of a Yellow Sun. There might have been another novel in there somewhere, but I think those are her two most famous ones. Yeah, I've only read, I have not read her fiction. I've not been inspired to read her fiction because I read her short story, the one that she was commissioned, and I hope she got a lot of money for this, but she was commissioned <laughs> to write a short story about Melania Trump by the New York Times right after Trump won. Oh, and it that, was, nothing can go it was such a piece of shit. That. It was such a piece <laughs> of shit. I was like, you know what, girl, I hope you got paid, I don't know, you know, 50000 or something at least for this. Uh, it was really bad. And then, and then I, I've read some of her nonfiction stuff around feminism and how what she thinks of as feminism. And I just find it really bland and profoundly neoliberal. And I've listened to some of her interviews with people of all people like Hillary Clinton and Michelle Obama. And she's sort of this... You know, for all, I mean, there's not, she's she's a very mainstream feminism. Like the Swedes love her. I think she's been incorporated into their school curricula or something like that. Sweden, yeah, Sweden. Okay. I mean, Sweden is goddamn Was she like a major Elizabeth Warren supporter? Yeah, yeah. Was she? I, I'd be well, she was definitely a big Hillary Clinton yeah. supporter, which logically uh, then four years later, I would assume right, she would have been right, a big Warren right. supporter. So, it would fit yeah. the profile. I've never found her feminism particularly inspiring. And I think I find it very sort of bland. And I think it's the kind of thing that the Swedes, you know, who have all these racial problems in their country would be like, oh, look, nice black lady mm-hmm. we can uplift, you know, at no <laughs> risk at all to us. <laughs> Everything right, she right. says <laughs> confirms what we've been saying about civilization, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And the thing about the transphobia uh, uh, the thing about the transphobia, I mean, I, I, so that's sort of interesting and complicated. I saw that statement that she made. She made the statement, and you can see the clip online everywhere, where she talked about trans women. Are and what she basically said was, someone asked her, you know, are trans women women? And she said, trans women are trans women. And then she did not. Now, to be clear, she did not say they are not women it's a very that was controversial right she didn't say they're not women she said they're trans women and then the problem is that i think she was trying to sort of articulate something about lived experience and what she was saying was right yeah yeah, so she go ahead oh so i i saw a a bit of a clip what she said was essentially like we as i don't know what you would call like natural born women i don't know what have lived all our lives as women. We've never known what it's like to be a man and have all the advantages that a man has uh, compare us to a trans woman who has at least lived some mm-hmm. part of her life as a man. Uh, she said, I just don't think you can mm-hmm. say that we're the same people, which to me seems perfectly reasonable, but mm-hmm. you know, some people attack that as transphobic. I think, yeah, so, so I think a few things, which is, first of all, I do wish we had better terminology to discuss what to discuss something around trans issues that doesn't lump everything as transphobic 
right? So I don't <laughs> think, I, I, I do want to examine, I think, some of the sort of troubling aspects of what she said, although I don't think she expanded her, or, or we haven't seen the rest of it. She could have expanded it. But I, I don't think her transphobia is the same as, for instance, you know, you know J.K. Rowling's, right? I don't think they're on the same plane at all. So I, I wish we had better vocabulary to talk about the variations of discourse. And we don't right now, right? Because we're so circumscribed by Twitter discourse, etc. As far as the whole thing about living in, I, I see her point, And I think she has a point. Um, but I also think that there's then a responsibility on our part to also consider what it means, right? For someone who has enjoyed privileges as a man, to suddenly understand what it means to be completely denied those privileges, right? I mean, that itself, I can tell you from, you know, many trans people's experiences, that itself is, is, is a, we may think, oh, ha, 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 didn't you know this? But, you know, when you, when you suddenly embody the sex, you know, the, the gender that has been completely uh, sometimes dematerialized, oppressed, and all of that, there is a, there, there's a, that's an experience that I think we also need to honor and think about, right? Much more, with much more nuance. And I think she doesn't seem to understand that. And then she just bloody well bore down on that shit, you know, by supporting J.K. Rowling and saying that, well, J.K. Rowling isn't transphobic, even though she was responding to something Rowling had written, which was all about equating trans identity with mental illness and all of that. And she said that all of that was reasonable. So, so mm, I, you know, I so I can't say that she is, CNA is transphobic in the same way. And I think that, I have, you know, but I think she doesn't get it. And the reason she doesn't get it is because she doesn't have to get it. And the reason she doesn't have to get it is because despite being, you know, a Nigerian born black woman, she actually, in, in, she's like Oprah. She occupies the same space <laughs> as privileged white women. It's a weird mm -hmm. dynamic, you know? Um, so, so, but, and then this whole thing about, you know, this person who had once just, you know, this other writer whose name I forget, but that's the Kerfuffle, right? She wrote this piece specifically addressing this person who had once been her protege, uh, who had, you know, who is considered also a young Nigerian feminist intellectual and so on. And she revealed, I guess, things that we did not know, uh, which have not been disputed, which is that this person had said horrible things about her parents' death, et cetera, et cetera. So basically, I also look at all of this and I think, well, these are two really horrible people. <laughs> What's really, and both of them have really fucked up politics around everything, it seems. So, okay then, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah, but I think, yeah, yeah, the trans stuff is, is to me is more unstable than we might want to think. Yeah. And just in case, uh, listeners don't know what has been going on. So, uh, Adichie is, is a very famous writer. She has written some very acc highly acclaimed novels, Americana, which I read last year. I thought it was highly overrated. Mm -hmm. Um, I heard half of Yellow Sun is better and she might have another novel here or there, but uh, I think it was last night or maybe a little bit before that, she published an essay on her personal website in which in the, it was like in three parts. The first two parts dealt with essentially what she felt was a personal betrayal by a couple of writers whom she had taken in in her writing workshops in Nigeria and how they had, you know, kind of like sucked up to her basically because she was who she was. But then 
when this whole trans controversy happened, they went on social media and denounced her as some kind of monster, and she felt very betrayed by them and and all that. Uh, but I think what what really uh, rang uh, true with a lot of people was a third mm-hmm. part, and and I, I want to uh, read this because yeah. I thought it was very well written, and I quote. In certain young people today, like these two from my writing workshop, I notice what I find increasingly troubling, a cold-blooded grasping, a hunger to take and take and take but never give, a massive sense of entitlement, an inability to show gratitude, an ease with dishonesty and pretension and selfishness as couched in the language of self-care, an expectation always to be helped and rewarded no matter whether deserving or not, language that is slick and sleek but with little emotional intelligence, an astonishing level of self-absorption, an unrealistic expectation of puritanism from others, an overinflated sense of ability or of talent where there is any at all, an inability to apologize truly and fully without justifications, a passionate performance of virtue that is well executed in the public space of Twitter, but not in the intimate space of friendship. I find it obscene. Uh, so I think regardless of what you think about you know, her trans stance or that, I, I think that really connected with a lot of people who are really fed up with essentially like this like woke police that's that's you know going around social media in, in the last you know couple of years or something so i mean what what were your thoughts on on that passage we should link the entire yeah. essay in our show notes but i got to say that um i only read half of americana and i never read anything else by her but uh, like i feel very um confident in saying that this is probably like the best thing that she's ever written. <laughs> it's way better essay. than Americana. Let me, let me tell yeah, you that. Yeah, I mean, Americana <laughs> is a pretty, it's a pretty thick book. Right. And like ha- getting halfway through it is still a few hundred yeah. pages. And, you know, like, like Chris said, I wasn't that yeah. impressed. So. Like if she showed this much fire in yeah. Americana, I, I would have yeah. loved it You know, it the more. funny thing is someone was discussing Americana online just now in the last hour or so, and they quoted the very last sentence. And I thought, that's a terrible fucking sentence. And it tells... Wait, do you remember what that yes, last sentence it was? was something like, America... As basically, I, maybe I'm wrong that this was the last sentence, but certainly the concluding sentiment was, oh, how wonderful America was. And she felt that mm, like, yeah. really? I mean, okay, okay. Uh, this is this is the most damning criticism I can make of uh-huh. Americana. It reminded me of Asian American oh, literature. Dear. Let me just say <laughs> no, that. No, no, no. <laughs> that bad, huh? <laughs> yeah, like that quality of aspiration under, you know, just leavened with a little bit of uh, cynicism, but not too much. <laughs> mm-hmm. Just enough yeah. to make white people happy, basically. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I agree with, uh, I was going to say the same thing, that this, it reminds me, her writing bothers me. The, the reason I had to put the book down is, um, this is kind of off topic, but I guess it's also on topic. But one of the things I've been doing this year is, um, uh, I have three kids and I'm trying to put together um, a reading list, an approved reading list by me <laughs> that reflects like our family and right. cultural values of um Asian and Asian American books for them to read that are kid literature, middle grade and YA since I have very young kids. And like the amount of Asian American books that don't make the list <laughs> is so long. And I like, I, I, the drudgery that I have to like, I have to like propel myself through so many of these awful novels, you know, hopefully <laughs> like one day your kids will appreciate all, all you've been through. Well, everything them. is like a marketing grab yeah. aimed at like some Gen Z school, like diversity and inclusion program. That's mm-hmm. how they all mm-hmm. feel. Or like, it's so hard to find like good Korean American 
YA and middle grade novels because everyone is like a North Korean like defector. <laughs> there's, you know, YA is littered with those. Then there's like, you know, all the all the books about um, all the YA books about like Chinese immigrants. It's always like this anti Mao. Yeah. Like, oh my god, my my family suffered so much under the Cultural Revolution. It's like this is a very pro Mao household, so like <laughs> we don't. That's not, yeah. that doesn't make the list. And then when it comes to like Filipino American um, literature, it's just like, there's so much shit there yeah. too. Yeah. You know, the Filipino mom is always like an immigrant mom who's cruel. You know, she says mean things and calls her daughter fat. And like, <laughs> they always have to get, like the kids are always getting bullied just for being Filipino right. too. You know, nothing else about them. <laughs> that's That's it. It's straight up just like how they look. And because they're Filipino or like their food stinks. Like it's all the, it's like stinky lunchbox narratives. And I'm like, this isn't what I want my kids to read about. Yeah, there's a really good essay about the bento box myth. Um, I, I can dig it up at some point and maybe we could put that in the show notes. But this writer talks about how she bought into, you know, as, a, as an Asian American, she bought into that whole bento box narrative as well. And then she completely deconstructs it. And she says, it's basically bullshit. And it's is that the stinky lunch uh, yes, narrative? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly the same thing. But just you know, like the bento box for a while was the you know the object right that symbolized the stinky lunch, as it were. And she writes about actually having lived that life and that it was way more complicated, uh, you know, and about how her yeah. I mean, it's it, the same thing is true for Indian American uh, YA. And I say this as someone who's actually writing YA fiction right now. <laughs> so, yes. Oh, really? <laughs> You're the wait, first wait, you to know this. You're that? the first to know this, by the way. This is a world exclusive. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. I'm, I'm so flattered that Escape from Planet has this. Uh, uh, do, do you mind like divulging a little bit of the like plot? You don't have sure. to. I, I know. No, well, maybe, uh, you know, maybe not. Yeah. All but... I will say is that it is YA fiction, and it is about an Indian American-ish family. But it's going mm. to be very different. It's not. It it doesn't have the stereotypical. The other thing is that a lot of Indian YA novels have the stereotypical Indian mother as well, right? Which is like the tiger mm-hmm. mom version of the tiger mom, you know, and is strict and wants and mine. Let's just say is rather different. Um, no. But and it's. I will say that it's queer. So, okay. um, yeah, cool. so I'm excited about that. But as a result, Eliza, I know exactly what you mean about YA fiction because I've been reading so much and it's such crap. Just, <laughs> just yesterday, uh, just yesterday, for whatever reason, I, I stumbled upon it. I don't know how, but it was a review, uh, not a review, an uh, interview with this published YA writer. And this was like almost 10 years ago. So I, I, don't, I don't even know whether what happened to this book. But the reviewer asked this writer, like, oh, how long did you spend writing and revising it she said oh i spent 12 days writing it and 12 days revising it oh, God. And that was just <laughs> so basically a month <laughs> and not even a month and you know as, as someone who has you know like written he's just like that is so disrespectful yeah. to just the, the craft <laughs> yeah. it's and and it, it explains so much of why uh that whole slew of books is you read it you can tell it's like a first draft yeah i want to go back to what yasmin said at the the beginning of the show where she talks about how like um queers right now they have everything so they they want the issue right i really think that that's what Mm. we're seeing in like asian american uh ya and middle grade books like they want the issue Because they, like what they write about, the experiences, I'm like, this is yeah. not what my kids are going to experience. And this definitely, they're just going to look at this and there's, they're just going to, like, it's going to be so alien to them. 
It's not a reflection of no, reality it's not. at all. No, I mean, yeah, I mean, people are leading very complex, complicated lives, right? So, yeah, I mean, it's and and they end up. I think they result in some really weird representations. You know, there's this fairly funny and interesting TV uh, sort of Netflix series called Never Have I Ever. I don't know if you guys. No, I, I actually oh, enjoyed that. Fun. Despite didn't we pot about that? Like, oh, you did. Yeah, we did. Yeah, we did. Such fun. Yeah, I, Liza, you might have not liked it, but I actually thought it was exceeded my expectations fun. as low you as know, they were. My yeah, attitude is if it's fun and it makes me laugh, and the John McEnroe as narrator, brilliant. I probably didn't like it simply because it was a series. I see, yeah, yeah, I see that's true. I'm very, yeah, very anti series. Like I can't. Yeah. Even the best yeah. series, I can't. It's like I can't give go me past. a fucking narrative in ninety minutes and be done. <laughs> right? Yeah, right. I get you. I get mm-hmm. you on that. Yeah. No, you're. I need a. I need to yeah, end. Exactly. Exactly. Something self-contained. Right, exactly. But even there, you know, like the mom was, you know, this sort of belabored, uh, was kind of stereotypical mom, and she had no friends. That was the weird thing. <laughs> and you know, my friend and I were talking. It was really how is this adult woman without friends? On the one hand, admittedly. It can be very alienating to be an Asian in some suburbs even now, right? But on the other hand, actually, no, at the same time, you know? Like, how do you not have friends, you know? So there are ways in which I think we reinscribe the sort of sad narratives that I think white culture, to put it very, you know, to use a very broad term, but I think, or rather I should say white network executives expect us to inhabit, right? Sad, sad Asians, yeah, escaping tyranny, their grandparents are anti-Mao, you know, and then of course there's a whole Cuban thing where everyone hates Fidel Castro, etc. But there are these <laughs> awful narratives that, we, that we're constantly asked to reiterate and it's really time um, to blast those, you know, to just to yeah. just dismantle them. Maybe we should just all just write some more. Like yes. we should just write kid lit and middle grade lit and YA. Yeah, well, all the run the gamut from literary fiction to uh, you know middle grade. But I, I think there's also kind of like this a generation gap because you know whether you're a writer or any kind of person in power you have to be of a certain age you know you can't be like 15 in most right. cases and and be able to do that so what we're seeing is this kind of like delay effect mm. in which uh, i'm sure that all those asians who are writing these middle grade books or whatever I, I, that's probably their experience but it's an experience that is rooted in their upbringing in the 90s or whenever they grew up and you know that's what they know and they finally get a chance to express it and because of how fast things mm-hmm. are changing mm-hmm it doesn't ring as true uh, for contemporary people. But for them, that that is the story they've been waiting to write I all their guess. lives. I think that's partially true. I think the other half of it is younger people, younger writers who really want to break into mm-hmm. the market, into that like DEI, like to, to fit that. Wait, what's DEI? Diversity and inclusion. Oh, okay, okay. I probably did say it right. D and I. <laughs> oh, uh, D and I. Okay, okay. Yeah, D and I. Uh, it's just they're they're really trying to fit that those kinds of programs and like that kind of marketing. So they're young and they have to like create mm-hmm. this like victimhood, yeah. even if there mm-hmm. isn't any, because that's how they can get taken seriously Absolutely. today. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I know. What you, yeah, I've been reading so much bad YA fiction, man. After all, I just gave up. And the other thing is that they are they're 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 also you can tell that they're basically being written as screenplay exactly it's all dialogue it's the the the, so much the language dialogue. is so yeah. dumb 
Mm-hmm. So much fucking dialogue. I'm like, can you mm-hmm. just stop talking for a minute? <laughs> Mm-hmm. There's no more descriptions. Yeah, when it comes to literature, like as like we we've kind of made progress because there's a lot of choices now. They are very diverse characters, yeah. um, but then it's like the literature just isn't rich. Mm-hmm. It's not like it's not like the stuff that was marketed, written for younger children, like a hundred years ago. Like if you read Black Beauty right. or something, or like Call right. of the Wild, yeah. like these are, are you know these were. These were definitely kids' books. Even like Lord of the Rings was like considered because it's fantasy. It was considered like for young people. Mm-hmm. And if you read that, like the la- the language is so rich, it actually brings you up as as opposed to just dumbing you down. Yeah, American YA fiction is just appalling for the most part in that sense. It's twaddle. It really is twaddle. Yeah, American YA fiction. Like I really, I'm not one of those parents that thinks like. Oh, as long as my kids are reading, like, oh, that, that's no. great. Like, I'm not like, oh, that. like, no, no, no it does no. matter yes. what you read. Yeah. There is a message that there are lots of messages I don't yeah. want my kids yeah. to. And also, I don't want my kids to be like, to read like this stupid books. Yeah. I mean, by that standard, someone who spends like 12 hours a day on, on the QAnon forums, you know, absorbing like 10,000 words a day is, is exactly doing right. Good, well, because right, they're right. reading. Like, yeah. no, the content yeah. matters. My <laughs> friend and colleague over at Current Affairs, Lighter Gold, said once, you know, she said, well, you know, in our, like, there was a time she said, I just went from whatever we were told to read in primary level, you know, school. And then I read Stephen King and then I went on to whatever, right? I mean, we, like why fiction itself is such a construct. It's it's very recent. I think maybe less than 15 years. Yeah, because I remember being in like fifth yeah. and sixth grade and discovering V.C. Andrews <laughs> or like certain Judy right, Bloom novels. Right, 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 yeah. So that's relatively, yeah, you know, but... And now, of course, there's a whole genre. There's an expectation that everything will become, uh, you know, a great and uh, a, yeah, Netflix a Netflix series. series. Everyone wants that Netflix contract <laughs> because they just throw money at stuff anyway. Um, yeah, I think that's bubble, yeah. So yeah. that's really what it's written for. But yeah, which brings us, you know, to things like book reviewing and all of that as well. Oh, agree. Yeah, great. Uh, yeah, I've been meaning to uh, let, let's get to our last phase of our podcast. <laughs> in which maybe all this could be counteracted if we had a decent and robust mm-hmm. and brave critic class, but we don't. And um, uh, Yasmin, why, why don't you talk a bit more about that? Because you you were the one tweeting about this. Yeah, I think I tweeted something. I so, sometimes when I read something that really irritates me, I just have to tweet about it because I'm just like, let me share <laughs> well, this. Yeah, response. let me share this misery with everyone. Damn it! So I read, and I was it's funny because while prepping for this podcast, I was like, oh, let me go back and look at that review, and I could not for the life of me remember a damn thing about the review except how much I loathed it and why. But this was, I can't remember which one it was, but this was a review and I was entranced by the title because it said something about, you know, why it's, you know, why I'm finally embracing, you know, why I love growing old and being invisible, right? Which is something that I've been thinking about a lot because I'm like, it's so nice to not be seen anymore in a way. Um, Whereas Mm -hmm. I think some women mourn that I'm like, yes, bring it on, bring it on. Also, people say dumb (laughs) shit because I'm also a journalist and a writer, right? People will say the dumbest shit in front of you when, you when they think you're just someone's granny. And it's wonderful because I'm just like sitting there and I'm like, you don't realize I'm taking notes on your conversation. <laughs> this is going into the novel. <laughs> you know. But anyway, long story short, I read the essay with great anticipation and it was all about the author. And it was, I can only, I, you know, she was just sort of looking into her own navel 
and it was blather. And I was just like, okay, I don't know what you're saying. Are you you're reviewing a book? Oh, I don't know what you're doing with this book review because you're clearly just reviewing your life. So, and it occurred to me that this is happening across the board, especially with women critics. And there's a certain genre of women critics, you know, ranging. I think the age is sort of, you know, I think this woman might have been in her 40s or 50s, but, you know, going up from like 20 to 30s, 40s, 50s, women critics in particular write in a very particular, seem to be compelled, perhaps for editors, I don't know, to write in this weirdly faux self-reflective tone about everything. So I got on the train (laughs) and then I went into the gallery and I walked around and oh my God, like didn't Adorno say something about museums and the death of bodies? And then I came out and I got on the train and I came back home. And I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> Even if you're dead. Is this like a product of like post Gawker, like post Jezebel, where like every like all the nobodies suddenly have memoirs? Yes, everyone's got a fucking <laughs> memoir. And I'm like, you're 21 years old, you do not have a life to remember. Even and but then as it turns out, you're 60 years old and what you remember is garbage. <laughs> so so I'm like, this isn't even about age, you know? It's about, yeah, you're right. I think there is that style that came out like what aughts maybe late 90s aughts in particular uh when the blogosphere really lit up especially with women writing about books and women writing criticism not in the quote-unquote you know accepted big places but on websites that they created and that was actually a really vibrant time but then it all kind of dissipated into this kind of like bored ennui and nothingness, basically. And it's sort of perplexing because you have that kind of criticism of books and of art and all that. And then you have, on the other hand, you know, what I call, especially with, in terms of books, for instance, I call it brick, you know, the book review industrial complex, right? So you have <laughs> the New York Times reviews and you have, you know, the, the LARBs and all the major you know, all the major um, publications, reviews, and reviewers, all of them churning out very prefabricated uh, reviews, which have sometimes nothing at all to do with the actual object, right, that they're actually reviewing. So, I mean, two examples. Uh, One is um, um, Joshua, one is about a film by Joshua Marston, which I have personally take on, taken on. And I do not know the director at all, but I have personally taken it on as my project to push this film as much as I can. It's called A Complete Unknown. And it's about this woman. It's about a woman who uh, takes on different identities and is based in New York. And all the critics said they hated it. And I watched it and it's a beautiful <laughs> jewel of film. But of course, what they hated, you know, when you look at the reviews, you realize what they hated is that this was a woman character. If she had done, you know, if a man had done the same thing, which is to say adopt different identities and walk through life having all these adventures, they would have called her a Lawrence of Arabia type, et cetera, et cetera. So there was that kind, you know, particular book review, the movie review that I was really bothered by. And I think that happens a lot. And then you have the reviews of even a successful book, like, say, American Dirt, um, which I, you know, and I think, Eliza, I'm told that you also read it. You know, I read the book. I think it's fine. It's great as a summer read. That's all it's meant to be. But for about two months, 
people raged and ranted against the book, including people like the New York Reviewer and the New York Times Reviewer. Uh, Roxanne Gay got in on it. Uh, they, you know, mm-hmm. And they just ripped it apart. But just to give you an example of how fraudulent, right, some of the criticism... They promoted their own they, books. Exactly. They were promoting their own books, but they were also lying about the book. So, for instance, in you know, one of the big things that kept coming up in all the reviews of this book the critical the criticisms was well you know this male character in this book writes in this really florid old style sort of old spanish style uh you know language and it's completely outdated and no one talks like that well yes (laughs) that's exactly what the main character in the book says about him <laughs> Did you read the book exactly. before you trashed right? it? You remember, right? You know who this is, right? The gangster, the big, you know, the mafia boss mm-hmm. writes these letters <laughs> to the main character who happens to be the owner of a book of a of a book sh- bookstore. And he writes these florid mm-hmm. romantic sort of letters to her and she kind of mocks him. You know, and she says, you know, he thinks he's being really elegant and literary, but he's not and this is what it's like. So there's there's that kind of, you know, point that was made that was completely fraudulent, which indicated that they hadn't either read it or had read it badly. There was that. Then there was all... Or they read other people's they reviews. They read other people's reviews, exactly. And then there was a really stupid, and this brings us back, I think, to what we had all been talking about earlier, right, in terms of authenticity and YA fiction. One of their biggest criticisms was, well, she's this middle-class Mexican woman. Like, Okay. They do exist. They exist. I don't know how to break the news. I thought to you. the accusation was that she was white. Was no, she actually? No, that's about the author. The, author, the author was white. Oh, also okay, not okay, okay. Strictly speaking, white. You know, she has a Puerto Rican grandmother. I'm like, what else do you want this woman to do? And she has talked about that. You know, in essays, like I'm very uncomfortable with the fact that I pass as white. I have a Puerto Rican. You know, like what am I? Conflicted ideas of identity. But that's separate from the book. In the book, she's a middle-class Mexican woman who owns a bookstore. I don't know. Like, maybe they exist, right? <laughs> I mean, bookstores must exist, and so on. So, But I think the idea was that what happens in the book is that she's wrenched from her reality because her entire family, including her husband, who is a journalist who breaks the story about this mafia guy, right? Her entire family is slaughtered in one afternoon. So what happens is that she has to run away with her child and they try to make their way across the border. So what happens there is she has this sort of, you know, this this fall in from grace, as it were. She comes, she goes sliding down the class ladder. So a lot of her experiences are about that. And they're actually pretty sensitive. You know, there's this part where she sees these two other Mexican women who are also trying to make it across the border and they're all in this kind of halfway house situation. And she notices the way they treat an indigenous woman who is has darker skin and who speaks with a very different accent, right? Because there are different accents and so on in the region. <laughs> Heaven help us all. And she notes it's a pretty that. big country. Yeah, exactly. And she notes all of that. And she what she also notes is her own helplessness. Because she realizes that mm-hmm. if she stands up for this woman, you know, these other women who have more power in this very fragile situation could fuck things up for her. So it's actually, you know, it's very complicated. And I'm not saying it's a, you know, heartbreaking work of genius, 
but it's pretty fucking good. I, I enjoyed and it though. So I thought it was exciting. It was exciting, right? Like that moment in the bus mm-hmm. where she has to hide her child under the seat mm-hmm. while the cops are there. Well, yeah. no spoilers, Sorry. Yasmin. <laughs> So cut, when cut, cut, so cut, cut. yeah so uh, it was yes I mean last summer you you did like a tweet rant about yes. the book and I remember at the time I was like halfway through the book and it was your tweet rant that you know I, I was like I just made me run I just really pushed through the book and just finish it all in one day and um, when I read your tweet thread I was like well thank God somebody agrees with me because I got the book because of the controversy and then couldn't figure out what the problem was like a lot of the stuff that they pointed out as like problematic i i couldn't find it or i just didn't see the problems yeah but but the thing is yasmin like you on maybe on like twitter were part of a minority but this book was a smashing success it was a huge (laughs) there's a reason for it because Uh, because it was a good book right and so i think if you are in a position, and I think this is why uh, Dietje's, um thing resonated with so many people, is because she is such a like a mainstream liberal type. If even she is fed up against this like uh, woke mob, that means that hey, maybe I'm not some weird freak just because of all this right. stuff on Twitter, which is a tiny minority anyway. And I, I think if you are whoever the writer of of American Dirt was, I forget her name. Um, I, I think what she did write was you know she just didn't give in she was just uh there was all this controversy she didn't like apologize to the best of my knowledge she didn't uh, you saw that you guys saw that slate story I, I shared with you right about how there were certain writers who were like being forced to revise yes. their already published That's works especially in of- YA. Yeah. <laughs> yeah especially in mm-hmm. YA. yeah mm-hmm. um and, they're forced uh, to hire like diversity yes. consultants and like sensitivity readers and yeah, absolutely ridiculous. And it, it's just these people. Uh, like, it, it only matters as how much you let it matter. You know, right. I, I think if you just stay the course right. and just be like, okay, people, are, some people are not going to like me, but whatever. Uh, I think in the end, you'll probably come out the better. I, I think as soon as you give in, you're you're giving mm-hmm. them power. It is actually up to you. And also, how yeah. much damage they can do. Right. And also, like, I think what are the statistics on Twitter? Something like, I think 80% of the tweets are sent out by 10% of people on Twitter. Yeah, it's, it's a classic right. uh, Pareto principle right, or right. whatever. And then also not many, only I think less than a quarter of, um, of Americans are on Twitter in the first place. And most, oh, it's a, it's a very, it's a small, very percentage. small percentage. Yeah. Most of them are just there randomly. And most of them, apparently, statistically, most of them will open an account and then just let it lie fallow for you know mm-hmm. ever mm-hmm. Yeah. Like zombies right. exactly so really you know the i think the thing about i know there was this one YA writer she may have been asian american oh emily wenzel was i think the uh, liza you and i potted about her like she's last year, the one right? that got like hardcore canceled before she should have stuck her she guns. came back right she, she eventually did yeah, publish she did it publish and it. hopefully it did yeah. well but it's totally taken out of context, yeah. and I think she caved into pressure. I, I really wish she and, should have, she would have just stood her ground. But the also lies, I think, with the publishers. And I think it's time for us to look at the publishers and say, listen, if you have the money to give writers advances, and if you have the money to sustain your own large salaries, next time there's a goddamn seeming Twitter storm, you know, this is where doxing is good. <laughs> Like, find out who these motherfuckers are, write to them, and say, hi. So this IP address is where your stupid, ghoulish tweets originated, 
And we will <laughs> reveal this fact unless you fucking take it down and shut the fuck up and leave. And I think that is the only thing. <laughs> unless there are real consequences for people who don't even read a book, right? Literally, like some of this YA stuff has been based on people not even reading the book. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's so mm-hmm. outrageous. And it's really outrageous to me that publishers are not fighting back. And of course, the reason they're not fighting back is, again, I think this is what Adichie's, you know, like her, all her tweets, I think, are, I see the point. I see why people, why these things that she has said resonate with people and readers. But I would also want to push back on some of what she has said. And I'm borrowing this, by the way. I don't remember who said this on Twitter, but someone on Twitter was saying, you know, but there are these institutions. First of all, there's a way in which she is kind of demonizing an entire generation of people, which I'm not comfortable with, right? Which is just... Yeah, I thought that was very weak. Yeah. Uh, and it opened her up to um, allegations. Yeah. Like, you're just some old fogey it's, who's out of touch. Yeah. yeah so I mean, she shouldn't have made her an age yeah, thing, I, mean, it's, I think. Because it's... She's not wrong, But, though. you know, it's not only... She's not only that she's out of touch, and but it's also that the problem right now is that a lot of people find themselves in an economy where there is no economy, right? Where they've been told that, oh, if you're 21 or 22 and you're a writer, right? We were talking about this, right? In terms of younger writers who probably have better stories to tell, still being compelled to reiterate the stories told by people who are like 30 years older than them. And that's because there's a publishing. And so I think there's this big dynamic that's unexplored right now, which is to say you have a publishing industry, for instance, that has that now survives on an economy that is bloody bullshit. I mean, how do you sustain an industry that pays someone like Lena Dunham, what is it, three point something million dollars for a book that (laughs) definitely did not recover that advance, right? I mean, I'm willing to stake my, my, they won't like hearing this, my two dead cats on that. You know, (laughs) sorry, babies. It's only because mommy knows she will win. Uh, But, you know, she's not going to win. She's her book has never recovered that particular advance. Right. The same thing is true for the New Yorker short story writer. You know, that New York short New Yorker short story called Cat People. Um, right, oh, yeah. it was um, awful. Kate Rupinian <laughs> yeah, or something. Piece of shit right? Yeah, published. Yeah, Rupinian. She published. She she got a two book deal for you know a six seven million seven figure deal. Blah blah blah. To the best of my knowledge, I don't think she's even sold twenty copies on either side of the Atlantic. To be honest, right? It's done really badly, right? So what? The, but the point is not to focus on the individuals, even though I do think Lena Dunham is evil. But the point is not to focus on the individuals <laughs> as much as it is a publishing industry, which, for instance, the publishing industry takes off from like May to September. No one is in their offices. Try getting a hold of anyone in the offices in, in publishing, right? It's, it's that kind of a business. It has exorbitant salaries on the top. It pays exorbitant advances that it obviously does not recover. I'm still trying to figure out how this economy even works. But that industry is therefore then definitely reliant on stupidity like social media storms, right? So then, all, so it's basically an economy built on a gigantic bubble. And it's an un- well, that- unsustainable industry, but it f- keeps fucking its writers over, 
when a writer of yours, whom you have said you will support as a writer by giving an advance to, for instance, signing a contract, is maligned in public, it is your goddamn duty to do whatever you can to defend that writer, not to cow down to the forces and then cancel the goddamn book. Yeah, I mean, speaking of bubble, yes. Oh, first of all, Yasmin, you may hate this. Uh, I will defend Lena Dunham to the extent that I do think Girls is a masterpiece. I will. I I'm, will, I'm I'm the with only you. man. You may be surprised. In New York City. You may be surprised by this, but I think she, Girls is highly underrated. Oh yeah, it's, we we must pot about that yeah. sometime. You, me, and Teen. Well, I think we may be the only three people in America who will, who will defend that really? series. Anymore, no, I but... think there are. You know what's interesting? This comes back to critics, right? There have been critics who have pointed this out that it's. I think it got bad towards the end. That's what I recall. I haven't watched. Yeah, it didn't end on the yeah, best and, note. And but, it got um, really weird. I think that's because she then became D Lena Dunham. And when you've become Lena Dunham, where the fuck do you go? Right. So mm -hmm. I think it sort of petered in quality. But it was an interesting show about a group of people in interesting ways, in a way that had never been portrayed before, really. Let's be honest about that. Yeah. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the honesty was yeah, what I really yeah. admired about so the show. Yeah. I So my problem is with her as a writer. She's, she, you know, like, what does she do to get that kind of an advice? Yeah, I mean, I, I, she seems to be a pretty bad person, she's generally speaking. So. <laughs> she's one of the few public characters about whom I will say, this person is demonstrably horrible. <laughs> I don't know her, but everything that she has done and the fact that she vomits out words every fucking day so that I know everything of what she's thinking about, I know what the inside of her stomach looks like because she insists on posting those <laughs> pictures. I know what her vagina looks like, for God's sake. I can say demonstrably Lena Dunham is a horrible human being. You mm. know, so th th but that's separate even from the fact that she did not need, you know, she, there was no reason to give her that kind of an advance except for the fact that they were counting on her millions of Instagram followers to buy the book. And mm. here's the thing, Instagram mm -hmm. followers don't read. Lena yeah, Dunham's uh, Instagram but, followers don't read. Mine do. Hers don't. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, my main point I wanted to Sorry. make was, I mean, <laughs> I could go on. like, you know, people in Plan A and, and some of our friends, I mean, we we often talk about, like, all this, the stupid money that's being yes. thrown around by the, for these unproven properties. Yes. Like, um, mm -hmm. I mean, Yasmin, you're, you're friends with uh, Trevor yes. from Champion Shocks, right? He and I, we both, like, I guess, have our own little book club going on. We we both read The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett, which just got this, like, huge deal mm. from that, or HBO or Netflix or whatever. We both read it. it it's an extremely mediocre book, <laughs> at least I think. And it's like, what has... I mean, it'd be one thing if you did that from a proven author, like, like a Toni Morrison right. or... Um, yeah, you know, somebody, somebody who who's like a huge name, but you know, this is a first-time novelist. The book's not even that great, but you're throwing around this money, and what exactly? I know they don't really think they're gonna recoup that. So, what are they doing? Mm -hmm. Is this is this an image thing so we they can say, look how so, great we are? Right. We paid all this money right. for this. Is it like their tax write-off, their throwaway? And that this is, I think it's a combination of things, and this is one of the things I'm trying to figure out. The first thing I'm actually trying to figure out, which is really hard to get a hold of, by the way are just the sheer numbers. Like, you cannot actually get numbers on a book. You can surmise, and you can do all kinds of math by putting pieces of information from here and there. Uh, so, for instance, you know, I read somewhere about the Rupinian book not selling very much in the UK, but that's also because I think in the UK they talk about much money very differently than here, perhaps, right? But, but it's actually hard to get actual hard numbers. 
Um, so that's what I'm trying to do is to find out how do you even, and no, because obviously no one wants you to know <laughs> there's that. But I think in terms of how do they make money? So what happens, this is my understanding. And what I've been told is that, for instance, Random House makes so much money from Fifty Shades of Grey that they were handing out like everyone, even the warehouse. This is what I'm told. So I just want to be clear. This is what I was told is that even the warehouse workers got, um, got uh, whatchamacallums, what are those things that we used to get? Bonuses? Yeah, that, raises? Okay. The thing that we used to get in the olden days of yore. Um, <laughs> you're right. Everyone got a big fat bonus. They made that much money from Fifty Shades of Grey. So the thing is, I think it's like a gamble, right? It's like the stock market. The only thing that's predictable about the book publishing world is that nothing is predictable. But that when something fucking takes off, it takes off, right? And then, of course, these places also have their, their sort of royalty who will make money no matter what. So you've got the Daniel Steeles and you've got, you know, the Steeles. He's yes. looking for the next Harry exactly. Potter. Everyone's looking for the next Harry Potter. Stephen King is a reliable name, etc. So those are, I think, the ways in which they do make money. And there is a lot of money to be made. Um, you know, there's just money to be made in different ways through all of that. And then there are all the merchandising and then there's all the, the TV deals, the movie deals. So you can make a shit ton of money when you get a successful property. But that's the gamble. And I, so, I, so I'm wondering if part of this is the issue is that, you know, it's like Vegas, right? Like the casino owners and the house always wins in a way. Well, that doesn't quite work. But, you know, like the casino owners are the ones who are really making money. The rest of us are going into Amazon or going to the bargain bin, you know, and we're happy to get a book for like $10.99, right, at your local store, etc. But that's not where the money is circulating. If you gave me um, a copy of the manuscript Fifty Shades of Grey before it got famous, and like, if I was somebody that was supposed to go through and, and like pick out the next blockbuster novel, there's no way I would have picked <laughs> Fifty Shades of Grey. Exactly. To be the next moneymaker. Exactly. It is. It's so unpre- bad. Not Same it. with Twilight. Yeah. It's so yeah. bad. Yeah. And yet, and yet, and yet, right? And yet, and yet. I mean, and a lot of books can be bad and also make money, and I'm fine with that, right? Like, I mean, romance novelists make a lot of money, and there's a lot of money in romance writing, and that's fine. I think they're unfairly maligned. They're, they provide yeah, a very they needed- do. They're great. Product. Who among us has not survived summers reading the, um, romance novels? The controversies that go on in the romance oh, yes. novel world industry are so exciting. The, the race ones. You mean with respect to diversity and stuff? Oh, God. Yes. The race stuff is bad, though. Yeah, the race stuff. And the funny thing is, the kinds of controversies around race in romance are probably the ones that people in YA think are happening, but that's not the case. I'm like, no, no, no. You don't understand. Look at race shit in certain romance novels. That's where you understand. So many of those novels, like the Harlequin yes. romances, the Bodice Rippers, they're just like they're just rape. Fantasies. They really are. They really are. No, yeah. If you, if you want a glimpse of the human nature, you just have to look at romance novels and porn. That's that's yeah. where yeah. Yeah, the, yeah. the naked truth. Yeah. And again, you know, you know will make your money out. is what I always say. Make your money where you have to make it. But yeah. But why is the publishing industry not supporting, you know, its 
its writers in a more equitable fashion. There's an editor, I, uh, I can never remember his name, but it's in one of my pieces. Um, but he basically proposed that, you know, we give all writers, he said 100,000, I think it should be more like 200,000 because of the ways in which you actually don't get all of that money up front, right? But he said, you know, give everyone, I would say $200,000 as an advance, right? Which comes in quarters because you don't get all of it all. And that supports you for a year or two, gets you to be able to write. And then, you know, you move on. But in, instead of this stupid system where you throw, right, <laughs> three to six million dollars at some, you know, 22 year old who doesn't even have experience writing on the basis of the fact that one short story of hers went viral or whatever. And, you know, I mean, that's just money down the drain. But again, yeah, I don't know what that, how that economy functions. Like, how does it work? Yeah, it all seems to be just a bubble mm-hmm. full of smokes and mirrors. Mm-hmm. Um, but switch, switching mediums for a second, uh, Yasmin, what's your opinion on, on Rotten Tomatoes? And uh, I, I think this like proliferation of near-perfect scores for certain things they want to succeed. I mean, it's kind of obvious when you see it. Uh, what's your opinion on that? So you're saying that so I used to follow Rotten Tomatoes earlier, back in the day when perhaps they were a bit more honest. But it sounds like from what you told me is that now it's all just 100%, right? Like everyone just gives it a perfect score. Well, there are certain things that really please Mm -hmm. uh, what you would maybe call like the urban, liberal, blue check mindset. And if you tickle tickle the the, the right ribs of theirs or whatever, you'll pretty much get like a 95% Mm -hmm. plus kind of rating. And sometimes it's obvious because the audience score will be like 20%. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The discrepancy (laughs) is hilariously uh, huge. But yeah, I kind of, yeah, I'm with you. Like maybe like seven years ago, I thought Rotten Tomatoes was really reliable. But nowadays it's it's more like, it's it's such a, such a crap. I I think it's a very corrupt industry. Yeah. In fact, if anything has close to 100%, I'm very suspicious. In that it's okay, so something's politically right, driven. Right, right. I mean, I think this is why you know my friend Lighter again always says that it's not it's it's not that it's perfect, but Goodreads for book reviews is a lot more. You can get a a sense of what the book might be much better than if you had went to you know the New York Times and New York or all the regular. Places. Oh, that that brings me. Uh, let me sure. just mention a book I read recently. It's called the uh, The Emperor's Children. It came out mm-hmm. like. The early two thousands. It's, it's a really bad book, but it, it was just a book that, for whatever reason, had just been popping up whenever you know I went on Amazon or whatever, recommended for you right. for some. I find it very insulting. I do after too. Read this yeah. Book. But <laughs> anyway, on Goodreads, it has a terrible review uh, from almost everyone. It's one of the lowest ratings I've ever seen. But I, I read this New York Times review that had this glowing uh, review of it. It's like, oh, this is so funny. It's just examination into you know this kind of like upper crust. Uh, New York culture. And uh, lo and behold, so the three main characters in the novel are all uh, brown graduates. They're all <laughs> right. like 30s and they're, they're all like, working in some media industry yeah. and they're all, you know, more or less well off. And it just so happens the writer herself is also a brown graduate, happened to work in a bunch of, you know, magazines and stuff. She's like, oh, you know, like, I could relate so much to, to these characters, which, you know, everyone has a right to enjoy a book that they can right. relate to. But it's like, not always get to write for the fucking New York Times mm-hmm. and, and give it mm-hmm. some award. And that's also it's not just... your job as a critic. You know, your job as a critic is not to 
think about whether or not you can relate to something. The, your job as a critic is to look at something as analytically as you can, given all the personal biases we know we all suffer from. Given all of that, how, how, do you, how can you still respond fairly to a piece, right? So I think, so when I say that, yeah, when I say that the book review industrial complex, you know, is corrupt, I mean perhaps less the issue of money, although it would not surprise me to learn some years down the down the line that something like that might have happened. But I think it's more about, yeah, exactly. Like there are these class issues that come up, right? That's kind of class cohesion <clears throat> that has crept into writing in the first place. I mean, so you will get, I think increasingly the only people who can write, I mean, I'm one of the few people I know of who writes for a quote-unquote living. And Lord knows I don't, you know, I'm not doing that well but i'm the only one of the few people i know who like most of my income 90 percent of it comes from writing that's not the case anymore for the vast majority of people most of people most people have a spouse with a with a job and healthcare, or they have you know comfortable family money etc etc but what has happened and i and i want to be very careful about how i frame this because there are fellow writers who make this criticism about, you know, the class dynamics in writing. And I want to be very clear that I'm not saying, wah, 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 <laughs> all these people with these kinds of degrees. All I'm saying is what has happened is that writing has become a place and a profession for people with money, which means that you get congregations of writers, you know, you get writers who are like-minded, very similar backgrounds, writing about each other and writing about objects that are made by people just like them, right? So I'm not arguing for some authentic working class critical writing or anything like that. I'm just saying, who can afford to write and what do they end up writing about, right? That has a lot to do with um, you know, sort of exclusion and class narratives right there. So there is that. And I don't know. I mean, I don't know how to fix it because it has by now become a self-perpetuating system. Is there anything more untrustworthy than a blurb from, from well, another as writer? A blurb writer. I, I would, as a blurb writer. I would rather trust a carny <laughs> with like a creepy monkey right. on his shoulder yeah, yeah, yeah. than a blurb from, from like one professional mm. writer to another. It's like, it's all just friends just it jerking is. each other it, off. I, and just, they do. I mean, I've written, I think one or two by now, uh, blurbs. Um, and they approach me. I think if my attitude about blurb writing is if I don't like the book, I will either tell them or I just won't blurb it because I'm like, obviously you don't, you're not going to use this. And it's a lot of work actually to blurb. I have heard <laughs> that, uh, certain famous academics whose names pop up on every goddamn, shall we say, critical race theory book, for instance. <laughs> no taking names. But certain very famous academics who are on democracy now a lot, shall we say, hypothetically speaking. <laughs> what I have heard is that certain academics literally do not read the books. Oh, I'm sure that's... I do. I, I assume that's like 90% See, of the case. I do. Like when someone sends me a book to blurb, it takes me a... And it's not paid labor, by the way. Also, so rude, people sometimes don't send you a goddamn copy of the book, which is... You have to buy it yourself. I don't. Well, if you read I'm, it, you, uh, therefore you'll, yeah, you'll hate yeah, it. Well, you know, I'm just like, I always tell them, like, will you send me a... Because I hate read. I know readers' copies are actually really valued in bookstores, apparently. I don't know why. Mm -hmm. People think they're kind of cool. I'm just like, no, this is shit. Give me the 
give me the proper pressed copy with the nice cover on it. You know? <laughs> and they're so rude. I have to remind them, like, could you please send me a copy of the book? I spent like three days reading, you know, just so that I could get you a blurb. And it's a lot of work because you read a few hundred pages and you have to condense all of that into maybe a paragraph and a half. And all of that, they might use maybe two sentences. So this is like sad labor, let me tell you, if you do it with honesty as I do. But yes, as we have, we may hypothetically speak of, you know, certain people who hypothetically speaking don't read the goddamn thing at all. So yes, in those cases, yes, I think you can be assured uh, that the opinion matters not one bit. But on the other hand, I can also say as a blurber, I hope that I think there are others like me out there. But it's, you know... I know someone who once posted this really scathingly bitter critical review of his book on, as a blurb, and it was hilarious. <laughs> oh, that's a, that's a power move. It was. Right it was totally a power move. And since then, unfortunately, it's becoming a you know it's become a bit of a fad, you know. Um, but yeah, Lena Dunham had her own father blurb. Did they have the same last name? That might be a little too obvious but sure that was unbiased right right and yeah he's very famous as her father i mean i had this whole thing about the lena dunham family as well and how it became an empire after she became famous but that's a whole other oh really yeah it's a whole other topic sounds like we need to have a whole other episode for that we should talk about um, lena dunham maybe oh yeah we, yeah we can do a whole re-review of of girls and everything um but yeah i mean we are approaching almost over an hour now so i, I think it's a good time to wrap up um has, does anyone have any thoughts that that uh, they didn't get to express? But now would be a good time to uh, unleash them. Nothing much, except you know, I think people should read for themselves, read with integrity, and try not to read or respond to a book based on the kerfuffle you might hear around it. You know, and I feel like I think that happened for I think with American Dirt, she was lucky that by the <clears throat> the book had already made it up the charts by the time that whole shitstorm hit. But I mm -hmm. feel like there was a chance that it could have gone the other way. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's why yeah. I think so, the, the person we talked about, Emily Wenzel, and is especially bad in like YA mm -hmm. communities. But yeah, they just fall under right. pressure because they probably think... So, yeah, yeah. I, I have no yeah. chance against the Like crowd. in my work, I always keep saying, you know, that I think we have to start putting the onus back on readers, to be honest. So readers, you have a responsibility. Read for yourself and don't read according to the herd mentality that you see around you. Mm -hmm. oh, just just quickly, uh, and on a positive on note, a positive what, what note, are... What, I love you all. You're what, fabulous. What's a, book, <laughs> <laughs> what's a book that both of you have read recently that, that has been fantastic? I read Dead White People, so I just picked up a copy of Jane Eyre, which I have always loved. <laughs> so. mm, okay, classic. <laughs> I was going to say, all the books I've been reading that are actually good these days are really old <laughs> books. Like I revisited Call of the Wild by Jack London. Mm -hmm. So the first time I read it when I was in elementary school, I didn't realize how pro-socialist Jack London was. Like oh, all yeah, of that yeah. was lost on me. And so when I read it again this time, um, I, I had that realization mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and right, really enjoyed right. that. But like all the books I'm reading that I love are like 100 mm -hmm. years old. 
And speaking of 100 years old or more, I will also, if I may, I'm sorry to be, I'm sorry for the asshole who puts in two books, but besides Jane Eyre, the reason I'm reading Jane Eyre is because I'm part of a group that's been reading Adam Smith. So we've been reading a lot of fiction. Oh, so, and because Adam Smith is so, <laughs> Adam Smith is very Adam Smith. That's the only way I can put it right <laughs> now. But it's fairly, you know, heavy, complicated stuff. And sometimes it's very repetitious. But we're breaking it up with novels of the period, which is great. But Adam Smith, I mean, everyone thinks they know Adam Smith and they don't because they haven't really read her. And so, uh, you know, I think that's the other thing I would encourage everyone to do is, you know, when you read about figures like Marx or recently, for instance, a controversy around Michel Foucault or, you know, or everyone just drops Adam Smith's name, for instance, you know, it's great to go back to, to actually enter the text that everyone seems to talk about as if they read him. And when you actually read those texts, there are so many layers that have escaped us. And that's always wonderful. Oh, Yasmin, I just realized oh, by Adam Smith, I, th- I thought you meant Adam Johnson, the writer. That's why I was like, oh, yeah, I know Adam Smith. Like, oh, of course, everyone knows Adam Smith. Oh, yeah, that was that But was I nice. assume you meant Adam Smith because everyone does know Adam Smith. Yeah, it's, it's like, it's like, it's like imagine a, a guy who's like trying to act smart, but like, oh, yeah, I know, I know Adam Smith. Yeah. But anyway, uh, a book, a really great book I just read is called Apartment by Teddy Wayne, who is one of my favorite writers. Living guy, uh, you know, uh, Imagine to that. your dead people. But uh, any Teddy Wayne, a uh, fantastic writer, especially about like kind of the uh, I call the dark patheticness of young educated men. Fantastic writer. <laughs> uh, just I think especially if you're a guy and, and you think a lot of books aren't written for you. Check out Teddy Wayne. He, he's fantastic. Um, OK, so uh, I think it's a good time to wrap it up. Yasmin, so much. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, we must get you back on. You, you can divulge all the dark secrets about the uh the nefarious Dunham Empire. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, let's do it. We should also talk about the big cast book at some point. I think that's also yes, yes, yes. That, that seems very it. relevant these yes, days. Yeah, yes, yeah, we should. Sure. Yeah, that can be. Um, that was like a bestseller like a year oh, ago, wasn't Jesus. it? I wonder how many people actually read it. Uh, I think, unfortunately, I think they may have because it's such, such a, a garbage. Um, Chris, oh, is everyone quoting it now? Uh, yes, and also it's so simplistically written that it's actually very easy to get through in maybe two nights. Uh, but I see. Okay. Uh, Chris knows why I'm talking about it. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. There's a big thing coming about that entire book. Um, yeah, it's it's really pernicious. But we should end mm. on a more positive note, which is to say... Well, we, oh, did. Yeah, we, we, did. we named three yeah, we to did. four books we that did. everyone should read. Books and... are great. Everyone, yes. read everything you ever want to read, no matter what yeah. the crowds say. Yes. And my philosophy is people think they're averse to reading. No, you're not. You're reading a bunch of dumb tweets, hours of hours of tweets every day. Convert that garbage into uh, that energy into a book and and you're doing the same amount. Someone just tweeted at me trying to get me to argue about something. And I'm like, do you realize I have written like 10 million things about this topic? Go read them and then argue and write an article about it. Don't fucking tweet Mm -hmm. at me. (laughs) Yeah, don't tweet, read. (gasps) That's a library poster right there. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, well, thank you for listening, everyone. And I'm sure we'll be back someday soon yes. with Yasmin It was lovely. Again. Thank you so much, Eliza. Yes. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it was a lot of yes. fun. I, we, we love always thank having you. you on here. So good night, everyone. And join us next time for our next episode. We're signing off. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.